Happy Palm Sunday. Today is the day that begins what the Christian church has known for centuries as Holy Week. If you're new to the church or you're not used to the liturgical calendar of the church, the church, the universal church, the church around the world, not just our church, but to the farthest parts of the earth. Holy Week is a time where the Christian church for centuries has specifically set aside a designated week to focus on the gravity and the seriousness of Christ's Passion Week. If you look at the Gospels, all four of them, all of them are the same in a sense, that from what we're about to preach about to the resurrection, the Gospels go in slow motion. Before what I'm about to preach about, Jesus is here, Jesus is here, Jesus is here, he's doing this, he's doing this. But when Jesus enters through the eastern gate, all gospel writers slow down and focus. Half of each gospel is the last seven days of Jesus' life. That's known as Holy Week. That's why we celebrate Holy Week. So my challenge to you today is this week, we all are busy. Everybody's got a busy life. It's amazing how busy people are. I mean, it's really hard just to have coffee with people, and I love coffee. But I challenge you this week to do something different, to lay aside things that are busy work. Yes, projects need to get done. Yes, things need to get done. But if you can just slow down and really focus on what Christ did for you. I believe Sunday when we gather for Easter, Easter will be different. It'll be magnificent. It'll be a bigger picture. It'll be a bigger feeling. It'll be a deeper movement of our hearts that we don't just say, yes, he's alive. We will feel that he's alive. But today we have a special man that I have asked to come up and read our scriptures to us that we will look at. Mr. Mike, one, he's got the greatest reading voice on earth. (laughs) But if you have a Bible, which I hope you do, if you have a Bible on your phone, don't turn it on because that's the least thing you need to do because you're connected to that too much. But open your Bibles to Zechariah, will be the first verse he reads, and then if you put your finger in Luke 19, he's going to read those. So let's... Let us come together, let us focus our minds and hearts as he reads God's word. Morning, church. Uh, Ask for your patience with my voice. He didn't have to say what he said. (laughs) So uh, we're going to talk about Zechariah, who over 500 years before Christ was born, prophesies this, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout. Daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fold of a donkey. Then in Luke 18, we get Luke's uh, witness of that event, which we celebrate today, starting in 28. I'm sorry, Luke 19, 28. After Jesus had said this, 
he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. He approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the coat, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the coat? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the coat, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all of the miracles they had seen. Blessed be the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Amen. Thank you, Mike. Told you he's got a great voice. Let's pray before we jump in. Father, I thank you for the proclamation and the reading of your word. Lord, your word is a gift to us. It is a gift to reveal who you are, what you did, what you accomplished, and what you desire. Lord, this week really reveals the state of the universe itself. That there is separation that needs mending. That selfless love is what heals. And that resurrection is what this earth needs. Let's speak to our hearts and our minds. Let us focus on your word today and maybe even tonight, Lord, with our children, if we have children, or with ourselves, we would look at this story and ask you, oh God, speak to me in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I have a lot of information, which we probably won't get through half of it, but I got excited as I typed. So we looked at Zechariah and Luke. Now, I want to let you know, there is a very unique time in the Gospels where every single writer will specifically tell a specific story. This is one of them. The triumphant entry of Jesus Christ, every single Gospel writer writes about. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But it's interesting, they all have different vantage points of what they focus on. Some focus on the cloaks, some focus on the donkey, some focus on the, the, the palm branches. But it's interesting, every one of them, after Jesus gets off the donkey and pats the donkey, they all have a different thing that they focused on Jesus doing. One writer talks about when he went into the temple and flipped 
the tables. I was right after that. Another one just talks about him going into the temple. Another one talks about the plotting of the Pharisees because of that moment. But Luke focuses on Jesus weeping over the city. But before we jump into Luke, let's talk about Zach, or known as Zachariah. I like to give guys short names because it makes them seem more hip. <laughs> the question is, why, why did all the gospel writers focus on this gospel being fulfilled, this prophecy being fulfilled? Well, to better understand the prophecy, we have to look at the book of Zechariah's main theme. Whatever you read in Zechariah, there is this main theme going through the entire book. And it's interesting that this prophecy is wedged between a warning of God's people and the result of what that warning will bring. It's right dab in the middle. It can be missed when we read. Sometimes you read Bible verses and you just kind of fly through it because it becomes familiar. But like our friend Chris Hall sang last week, Oh, but God. God would not allow his church to miss this prophecy. This prophecy was extremely important. He did not overlook it. Not only did God write about it, 500 years, like Mr. Mike talked about. This is 500 years before Jesus would enter the scene. And Zechariah saw this moment. But not only did God write about it, he actually fulfilled it in person to its very last detail. The main theme of Zechariah is God's care for his people in God's intention and longing for a lasting covenant relationship with his people that will not only restore them, but save them. That's his theme. Zachnon opens up with God warning about the advancement of an enemy. This enemy was going to come and wipe out Israel, destroyed them. But then Zechariah Nanan happens. And it isn't this warring king. It isn't this white stallion coming on like Revelation talks about. That's later. Jesus coming as the warring king eventually to destroy all his enemies. But God's focus was to destroy the main enemy, which was death itself. And he wasn't coming warring, Zechariah says. He was coming humbly. Humble victory. What would look like loss would actually be triumph. So, Luke decides to connect the dots for us. So does the rest of the gang, Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke is a physician who was trying to prove if a dead man actually comes to life. <laughs> oh, what he would find. But Luke's focus, his gospel, mainly focuses on the message in the heart of God. In this moment, where all the gospel begins to go in slow motion, Luke wanted to focus on the heart of God. Notice, remember, he ends the story by Jesus weeping over Israel. 
I love that verse. Oh, how I would long to gather you in. The same people that would praise him would murder him. And he knew that. They thought that they would crown him, but he knew they would kill him. They thought he would come triumphant and destroy the Roman Empire and give Israel its prominence, its dominion. But he knew he was coming to save their souls from death. The true separation from God. Luke has a distinct vantage point, like I told you, they all have a vantage point. He was seeing the Messiah's heart to wholly save a person. Not to give you prominence, not just to exalt you to make you look good, but to bring you back to the Father himself. Just like 2 Peter says, Christ died in order to bring us back to the Father. So let's take a little look at this triumphant entry. There is so much amazing symbolisms, connections, and things that I just decided to write a sermon on those things. And if you like Jewish history, this will excite you a little bit. Okay? It excites me. I got to see this gate in person. And it's sealed up. It was sealed up by the Ottoman Empire in order to stop the Jewish Messiah from coming. Problem is, he already came. You could seal that door up. But interesting, I don't know if you know this, in Ezekiel 36, there was a prophecy of the gate actually being shut. In Ezekiel 36, God proclaims that my servant will enter through the gate to bring salvation and then it will be shut for no one to enter again. It's literal. The eastern gate in Jerusalem is basically bricked shut. The Ottoman Empire didn't want the Jewish Messiah coming because the empire wanted to rule. The Jews missed that that triumphant king came humbly, not warring. They missed it. But let's look at this. This is the unhighlighted element. So they talk about the cloak, they talk about the donkey, they talk about this. They don't mention the gate. But they do mention the place called Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was a very important place in the city. It was also very important to Jesus. Because the writers let us know that he came from the Mount of Olives. He was Coming down the mountain. What did Moses do when he came down the mountain? He gave the people the words of God. Here was God himself coming down the mountain, not to give words, but to enter in and to begin giving himself away. The law in person came down the same way. God was coming down to his people. But he would. The Mount of Olives was a pathway that he would have to walk through the eastern gate. This was Jewish tradition. This was Jewish belief that the Messiah would enter through this gate. They still believe that. 
Jews who do not believe in Jesus Christ believe that the Messiah will break down that wall and enter in. But he already came. Remember, Ezekiel, he's coming first, then it will be shut. But why is this gate important? This gate, Hebrew name, means the gate of mercy. The gate of mercy. God was literally walking through the gate to bring mercy. And then you think of the stories of Jesus. What is one of the titles Jesus calls himself? The gate. And they enter in through me. I am the door, he said. The literal translation, the gate. He was talking about this gate. I am the way that you receive mercy. You all need mercy. I need mercy. It don't matter how much money you make, how well-dressed you are, if you have all your life in the ducks in the row, it doesn't matter if you have drive the nicest car, have the biggest house, you feel set. You need mercy. Without mercy, there is no forgiveness. Mercy is you get, you don't get what you deserve. And here was God coming to literally bring it. It was no longer a philosophy. It was no longer an ideology. It was no longer a hope. It was coming to fruition. God was not declaring mercy. He was going to give mercy. So Jesus walks through the gate that proclaims what he actually is. Mercy. Zechariah tells us, like, like Mr. Mike read, Behold your king who is coming to you. He's not sending a messenger anymore. He's not sending, sending an errand boy. The king is coming to you. That's like if Jesus literally walked down your driveway, opened your door, walked in and sat on your couch and said, Hi. This was God coming in person to bring what every single soul needs, and it needs mercy. And listen to what Zechariah, we, we don't want to miss it. Behold, your king comes to you having salvation. And later he says, peace. What is the essence of salvation? It's mercy. Mercy. The king who rode on the donkey was coming, was not coming to rescue from the oppression of Rome, but was coming to saturate a people with mercy to rescue them from the oppression of separation. By coming the way he did and coming through what he did, Jesus wants us to see what he brings to you. Inexhaustible mercy. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how you feel. That's not being rude. I'm just telling you. God never runs out of mercy. The cup 
is never empty. Do you know in Jewish tradition, if you went to a Jew's house, David said it great in Psalm 23, my cup overflows, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you know the cup is very interesting? Interesting, Jesus handed the cup. Okay? He handed the cup around the table. What happened to the cup? It became empty. Okay? That's a big thing in Jewish tradition. If you're at a Jew's house and they continue pouring the cup, they don't want you to leave. They're telling you, we want you to stay. But if the cup is empty and they don't fill it, they're saying, get out. Okay? What is David proclaiming? What is Jesus showing? David proclaims that God wants me to stay. That mercy doesn't run out for me. It doesn't leave. It doesn't end. I will have mercy forever. And I will gaze upon the merciful one forever. So will you, those who proclaim Jesus Christ. The reason we worship all the time is because mercy, mercy, mercy is there. But notice when Jesus did the Lord's Supper, the cup was empty, telling him, telling them, I have to leave. I have to empty my cup so that your cup could be full. Notice he says, this is my blood being poured out for you. What mercy are we dealing with here? Let's look at the palm branches. Sorry, mercy was... God. The king was bringing mercy. I, just, I remember just sitting there. and the, the Interesting thing, parents, what you're learning today, the kids are learning upstairs. Talk to them about mercy. Talk to them about the things you learn. Engage them if you have children. Engage your grandkids if you have grandkids. If you, husbands and wives, engage each other around the table talking about the triumphant entry. Engage each other with this truth. Palm branches. The palm branches are not mentioned in Luke's account. Notice that. But they are in John's. And they are in Mark's. John lets us know exactly what branch they were waving. The palm branch. Why is that important? Well, first, originating in ancient Near Eastern religions in the Mediterranean world... The palm branch symbolizes victory, triumph, peace, and eternal life. Interesting, that's everything Jesus is. Jesus is victorious over our enemies and his enemies. Jesus triumphed over the greatest enemy. Jesus called himself the Prince of Peace. And Jesus claimed to bring us eternal life. This palm branch wasn't by accident. They were declaring Jesus as Messiah. Second, these branches were also used often in times of celebrations over victorious battles. King David, when he would enter from a battle, the people waved the palm branches. Even in one of the Gospels, you heard it said in one of the Gospels, Jesus is declaring, when they, when they do the chant, what do they say? Hosanna to the son of David. The descendant of David. So just as David 
was triumphed over victories. Jesus was being triumphed in the same way, celebrated. And one of the titles Jesus calls himself, so much so that he has it on his robe and he's got it tattooed on his thighs. The king of kings. So by waving the palm branches, they're declaring Jesus as the Messiah and claiming him as their king. It's ownership. Third, the palm branches were also a symbol for the high priest. Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just a king. He's also the high priest. And the reason the high priest, this became the high priest symbol, do you know a palm branch takes 30 years for it to produce fruit? What age did the high priest be able to actually be a high priest? He couldn't be a high priest until he was of the age of 30. What year did, how old was Jesus when he began his ministry? 30. So they're not only declaiming him as Messiah and king, but our priest. Why do you think the Pharisees got so mad? So not only is Jesus the king who governs and rules in goodness, but he's also the high priest who connects and carries the burdens of his people. Jesus carried your burdens. My question to you is, What kind of humble mercy are we dealing with? What kind of patience are we dealing with? Let's look at the garments. I told you I got a lot. I'm excited. The laying of garments is basically them giving Jesus the red carpet entrance. You ever see a red gala? You know, the Oscars and all that crazy stuff. Oscars are Weird now, but they roll the red carpet and all the celebrities walk in and they got the flashing lights and the crowd and the fans screaming and all that stuff. This was them welcoming Jesus as a a celebrity. They were laying down their own clothes down the aisle for him to walk on. If a person laid their garment on the floor in Jewish tradition, they were claiming you as one of the most important people that walked on the ground. One translation in the Talmud, which is the Jewish, the Jewish basic explanations of the Hebrew scriptures, the translation here is they laid down their talents. If you don't know what a talent is, in English, pressure. What the Jews would wear to pray with the tassels and had the etchings of the law on it. But on the collar itself, the Hebrew words etched is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They were laying down those on the ground, declaring him as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But it's interesting that as the crowd laid down the garments, the king who rode on the donkey welcomed the praises of his people, even while his enemies plotted against him. Notice one of the Gospels, the Pharisees are so ticked off at this moment, they 
elbow each other, say, look, we're gaining nothing. The world has gone after him. Instead of seeing who was before them, they have promised Messiah, the one that they actually longed for and said that they hoped in, because he was taking their fame. Well, no, we want our prominence. We don't want Rome to come against us. We're already oppressed. Why would we let this fool come in? We need to kill him to stop this. The donkey. Why did God choose to have this donkey? This ordinary mammal was not the one that people gazed upon with awe. You ever look at the donkey? They cute, but there's nothing to really look at. I mean, they're just a donkey. They're not a white stallion or a beautiful brown horse that's just magnificent. The one who runs at battle. This ain't that animal. This is the animal who was designed to carry burdens. The donkey was your ordinary work mule, basically. They put sticky olive branches on it. They carried bricks. They just were overloaded. Wasn't something to look at. This was nothing. But do you know donkeys in Jerusalem are a lot shorter than the donkeys in America? Donkeys in America are big. They like the size of horses. That's because we feed them junk. <laughs> but the donkey in Jerusalem is shorter. A grown man's legs would drag on the ground. It'd be funny looking. That baby's praising God out there. <laughs> Jesus chose this. He wasn't coming to enter in to look beautiful. He wasn't trying to gain people's awe. He was coming to say that he's going to come for ordinary people. He's not coming for the high priest and the Sadducees, even though he would. And he's Nicodemus. Let's take him. Oh, God, Nicodemus, what truth he found. But he was coming for the nobodies, the outcasts, the ones who did not believe that God even paid attention to him. Jesus is coming on an animal saying, I notice you. And I am here for you. Notice the prophecy from Zechariah. There's no reason why, other than God fulfilling this. Okay, we heard what Mr. Mike read, but if you continue reading, God tells you how he's going to beat the enemy he's talking about. It's pretty amazing. So he says, Behold, Oh, Zion, here comes your king in humble stature to bring salvation. Well, how is he going to bring that salvation? He's going to dominate. No. Later on in Zechariah 9, he says this. I will cut off. That word in Hebrew, cut off, means take away. I will take away the chariots. I will take away the war horse. I will break the battle bow. And I will bring peace to the nations. And he will proclaim salvation. He will rule from sea to sea because of the blood of his covenant. Verse 
I mean, good Lord. How much more precise can God make it for his people? Also, a little lanyard. By Jesus riding on a donkey, he was actually proclaiming something even more significant. The father was going to kill his son. Yes, he was fulfilling Zechariah, and yes, it was going to be the blood of his covenant. But the Jews knew their history. What did Isaac rod in toward his sacrifice? A donkey. Who was supposed to sacrifice his son? The father. Jesus was proclaiming, riding on the donkey, yes, you're proclaiming me as king, but the king has come to make a sacrifice. God was going to destroy his own son to bring salvation by his own blood, the covenant. Interesting. Let's talk the last thing we'll talk about. I've got three minutes. So the Sunday school teachers aren't going crazy. Let's talk about the chant. Hosanna, right? You, if you're a Hillsong fan, with the original woman that sang Hillsongs, by the way, who had the monster voice, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory in the highest. You know, that song, I can't sing, I'm sorry. Okay? Did you know that chant is a, a desperate cry for help before it's a praise? Hosanna comes from two Hebrew words. Hoshana, Hoshana, Hoshana. Yeah. Okay? Which means, save us now, please. And Anna, which means, I beg you. So these people are waving the palm branches, declaring Jesus as Messiah, King, and Priest, fulfilling God's promise. And they are begging him to save them. Save us now. Save us now. Save us now. But where does the praise come? Glory to God in the highest. What are they doing? They're begging God to save them and also proclaiming that he's keeping his promise. Throughout Jewish history, God paid very much attention. He still does. Don't say Jewish history, but I'm just saying, in Jewish history, what does God proclaim to Moses? I have heard the cries of my people. What about Isaiah? Cry out to God and he will help you. David, in the times of trouble, he will answer me. Over and over, God is saying, you cry out to me, I will come. You cry out to me, I will come. Keep Crying out, because I will show up. It's interesting, Pastor Jeff, in times of darkness, that's when God shows up. Or the world was about to get really dark. But God still showed up. They were proclaiming a chant, not realizing what Jesus was actually going to do. He was not going to save them from Rome. He was going to save them from the actual righteous wrath of God. 
This is a chant that you would say if you were drowning in a river. Somebody save me! And Jesus riding on that donkey was saying, I'm here. I'm here. And then the glory to the God in the highest would be us like a football game. Hooray! He's here. The question I have for you When one sees who the king on the donkey truly is, this chant is something that spills out our souls and our lips naturally. The reason for this is because the king who rides on the donkey is entering for one purpose only, to pursue his people, to save him. If there's anything in this story that I want you to grasp today out of everything I said, I want you to feel the relentless desire of God specifically for you. Yes, it's good that you look at the person next to you or you know somebody in the church that you seem feels like they're holy and, man, God must love them. No, God loves you. He entered through the gate of mercy to bring you mercy. This wasn't just something that was going to happen in the transaction. Yes, the transaction happened 2,000 years ago, but it is still alive in us today. So the question is, does this chant well up in you for your king who's came to save you, serve you, take your place, be merciful towards you, suffer for you, answer your cry, welcome you in, give himself, and resurrect to prove his love? Let's pray. Father, I pray the words of Psalm 118 over your people. There is, if I can get to it, interesting that this is, this chant that your people cried out to you on the road was them quoting scripture itself. This wasn't just a made-up chant. This was a chant designed forever. Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is king. And he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are our God and we will give thanks to you. You are our God. We extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord today for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. Before you go and I end, I want to say this. If you didn't get one of these when you came in, get one on the way out. The artwork's beautiful, but my challenge to you is to read the Easter story on Easter before you come to celebrate it. It's just a gift to you, just to help you focus on this week. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he cover you in his countenance. And may he always 
be your joy. In Jesus' name, amen.